Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Legislating values. Our values are represented by our body of laws. Which laws? Whose values? There has always been a national debate about tough issues. This isn't something new. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. I can't tell you who to sock it to. Everyone isn't going to agree in the end. But it is our responsibility as leaders and as citizens to be able to not only contribute to that debate, but to develop something that's going to move us forward. Our guest is Anna Eshoo, representative for California's 14th Congressional District, recorded in front of a live audience at Stanford University. Who decides what becomes law? Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Today, we've taken Philosophy Talk on the road. We're recording the program in front of a live audience down at the Stanford campus, very near that oasis of thought we call Philosopher's Corner. And from Philosopher's Corner, our conversation migrates to the air, and then from the air to our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org. Today's program is made possible by KALW, your local, innovative, public radio station. We might have talked to some of you on the program before, but we've never met you before. We've never seen you in person, so we're really pleased to have you here. Welcome. So, John... So, John, our topic today, legislating values. I mean, it seems to me, in a way, that's kind of obvious. We have conflicting values, something has to happen, we take a vote, the majority rules. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, uh, it would be preferable, instead of having the majority rule, ruling, to have the, the sagest and wisest ruling. But nobody's ever quite figured out how to pick the sagest and wisest. I don't think it can be argued that the majority always picks the sagest and wisest. Uh, witness, oh, today. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, our recent election, is that what you're thinking about? Uh, yes. Presidential well, uh, actually, any of, of the last 35 or so presidential elections <laughs> yeah, would probably, <laughs> probably make the point. It seems to me uh, there are some values that are pretty fundamental and widely shared. Everybody values liberty, right? It's part of the fundamental contract of a democratic society that there should be liberty, there should be equality, there should be a large degree of freedom of thought and expression. Those things are kind of fixed. They're part of like the conditions for there to be a democracy at all. That's right. I think that's the first category of values, the things that are just necessary to make a democracy work at all. I'd throw education in there too because if you've got a bunch of idiots, they're, they're definitely, in other words, there's no guarantee that democracy is going to lead to a good government. The only hope for making this one possible form of democracy that might, uh, one form of government that might not be tyranny, all, just not turn out bad, is to have an educated citizenry that talks to each other a lot. But education is one of these great arenas of conflict. Take just the teaching of science. There are, all around the country, there are people are gearing up to try and force the teaching of intelligent design in public schools to give it equal time. Some people see that as a, the intrusion of religion where it doesn't belong. Some people see that as, well, I don't know what they see it as. They see it as a fair hearing, teaching the controversy. I mean, what should the legislature stand? Should the legislature say, say yes, we will force the teaching of uh, intelligent design? Should it say no? 
Just well, divorce from the national. Think the local legislature. Well, Ken, I mean, I think the way you put it kind of biases the issue. I've been teaching intelligent design at Stanford for 40 years. We discuss intelligent design every year in Introduction to Philosophy as one of the possible arguments for the existence of God. We read David Hume's dialogues. I am all for teaching intelligent design in the classroom, but not in the science classroom. I agree. I agree about that. But other people would say it's science. So we look, we have these radically conflict. We have, we have a pluralistic society, lots of different value systems, but sometimes they're in conflict, deep, perhaps intractable conflict. I want to know, when should the legislator step in and choose sides and say, this is how we are all going to live? Well, in the, case of, in the case in point, should the intelligent design hypothesis be considered in the science classroom? It's uh, boards of education that are going to make the decision in the first instance, and they'll make it on the basis of majority, and I imagine they'll make different decisions all over the country, and then there'll be lots of interaction and uh, intelligent discussion and not-so-intelligent discussion, and eventually, I would guess, we'll come to the conclusion that it doesn't belong in the science classroom, but what's so bad about that? You are so optimistic. If you look at at the history of the legislature interfering in questions of value, you'll see what a mess they've made of, of it. And to talk about that mess, we have the only person who can sum it up in 60 seconds. That's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes. United States Postal Service was established in 1775. By the time the 19th century was in full swing, some Americans became alarmed by the mail, the way some are alarmed by the Internet today. The U.S. mail was disseminating secular urban values. It was delivering mail on Sundays. By charging low rates for publications, the U.S. post office was allowing certain businesses to flourish. Shady businesses, mail order businesses, there was mail fraud. And there was a brand new technology, photography, which made nude pictures possible, which in turn were mailed to Civil War soldiers. The time was ripe for Anthony Comstock. After serving in the Civil War himself, he became a dry goods salesman in New York City, where he stood in horror of that city's prostitution and pornography. He formed the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and began lobbying against porn and dime novels and yellow journalism, which he called feeders for brothels. In 1872, Comstock went to Washington with an anti-obscenity bill that he had drafted himself. Congress passed the law, which became known as the Comstock Act. Besides obscene materials, the statute made it a federal offense to send birth control information through the mail or across state lines. He was made a special agent by the post office. In 1874 alone, he claimed they had seized 194,000 obscene pictures and lithographs, 134,000 pounds of books, 14,200 stereo plates, and 60,300 rubber articles. He also got a percentage of all fines levied, which no doubt helped fuel his zealotry. He was also responsible, directly or indirectly, for at least 15 suicides including proto-feminist Ida Craddock, who written a marriage manual, and a Madame Ristelli, who performed abortions and sold contraceptives. Of her death, Comstock commented, a bloody end to a bloody life. Some managed to use Comstock for their own ends. There was a fellow named Harry Reichenbach, a turn-of-the-century promoter, who actively sought Comstock's condemnation of a painting from an art gallery he was working in. When Comstock condemned it, its fame was assured. The painting was that masterpiece of kitsch, September Morn one of the most duplicated paintings in history. Comstock himself died in 1915, and the parts of the act dealing with birth control were eliminated in the 30s when the U.S. government lost its case against Margaret Sanger, who had imported Japanese diaphragms through the mail. But amazingly, the Comstock Act is still in the books and was last amended in the 90s. And though we can order vibrators and edible panties through the mail without fear of reprisal, Comstockery is still alive and well in the flaps of our video games, hip-hop music, efforts to impose gag orders on physicians, outrage over pop stars spouting the F-word on award shows, and, of course, Janet Jackson's wayward mammary gland, which, despite the best efforts of prudes everywhere, has so far resisted all efforts to legislate it. I gotta go. 
Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.